You are listening to the Enormo Cast. So on each episode, I try to say something ridiculous to keep you listening to and considering the commercials on the Enormo Cast. For example, I might claim that Adam Antra once dunked on Carl Malone wearing black diamond stretch font pants and a pair of vintage Air Jordans he found on eBay. Or despite marketing's advice about being inclusive, I'll say something completely esoteric like black diamond's headlamps are brighter than six cluster winks on a cookie cutter. That's one for you marine biologists. But of course, these are flat-out fabrications. Fake news, if you will. But what's not a lie is that Black Diamond simply makes and sells great gear to keep you safe, warm, and dry, and feeling as slick as Bootsy Collins' middle finger on your next adventure. You need good gear, and the climbers at Black Diamond make good gear. And they have supported the Enormacast since nearly its inception. So please consider that next time you're about to throw down hard cash for that next prized piece of gear. Black Diamond is a proud supporter of the Enormacast. La Sportiva is a proud sponsor of the Enormacast, and though they could rest on their laurels, keep tossing mirrors at my thick skull, and watch me stroke them like one of Lenny's doomed rabbits, La Sportiva has in fact dropped several innovations on us for the summer. Behold the Kataki, a lace-up version of the laser-guided Otaki, in case you need to squeeze more blood out of your toes to hit that jib. And the venerable Mythos has been updated to the Mythos Eco, a shoe made from 95% recycled materials and clean processing. And the Maverink, a fun, customizable shoe for kids, designed for a more comfortable, less restrictive fit on growing feet. Just a thing to convince them they love climbing before video games steal their souls and they never want to step outside again. So head to Sportiva.com or your local climbing retailer to check out all of Sportiva's new goods. And remember, when you support Sportiva, you support the Enormacast. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold so it out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Welcome to the Enormacast. I am your host, Chris Kalous. Thanks for coming. Huge crowd on this crummy, crummy-ish morning. It's about, uh, what? what is it, April 22nd? Is that what the day is? 21st. All right. 420 was yesterday. Huh, I missed it. It's at noon on uh, April 21st, and this is episode 132. I'll edit that in later. Today, we're going to be talking about climbing films, because this is a five-point film festival, and we're going to talk a little bit about that with some filmmakers and a curator of a festival and a consumer. 
as well as someone who's sort of a gatekeeper for the media. So that's going to be our topic today. For those of you who uh, aren't aware of what the Enormacast is, I'll give that really quick. It's a climbing podcast that I started here in Carbondale about five years ago and has currently 127 episodes out with all sorts of climbers from all walks of life, including famous people, people you've never heard of. And uh, it's all on iTunes to download for free as podcasting mostly is free. And uh, anyway, please go check it out if you've never heard of it and uh, you enjoy yourself today. So let's go ahead and get started with our panel. You want to grab the mic there, Dave? Hopefully this is all working. I was, I was hoping someone would actually run all this stuff for me this year, but this ain't happening. So <laughs> I got multiple recorders. We'll see what happens. First guest I'd like to introduce to you guys is Dave Oleski. Uh, Dave showed an extended trailer for his film um, about Fred Becky last night, and um, I invited him up to talk a little bit more about that uh, about that that project as well as about climbing films in general. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. Uh, it's great to be here at Five Point. We're super super stoked that Five Point allowed us to to show an extended trailer last night for our upcoming feature. And um, yeah, it's just it's a super cool festival. It's my first time here, and you guys uh, are doing a great job. Next next guest down is Eric Becker. He uh, just also put a little film in our Five Point Film Festival here in Carbondale. And has also got another project happening. So welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me. I want to set the scene real quick for our viewers at home. It's a beautiful, sunny, warm day here in Carbondale. I'm wearing a sharp pair of uh, Bermuda shorts. That shivering sound you hear is just me being super excited to be on your podcast, Chris. Awesome. Um, so thank you for uh, having me. Awesome. Uh, next one down the line is Aisha Weinold. She is the, the owner, operator, uh, maven of... <laughs> Ragged Mountain Sports here in town, our recycled uh, gear store, as well as the founder of the No Man Land No Man's Land Film Festival, a film festival with submissions and films primarily made and starred in by women. So, welcome, Aisha. How are you? Hi, thanks for having me again. This is awesome. I'm super psyched to be a part of Five Point. This is where I was initially inspired to start our film festival and to start No Man's Land, and I love Five Point even though it's cold. On the end there is Ben Yardley. Ben works for uh, Big Stone Publishing, which publishes Rock and Ice magazine. Uh, and like I said, is, a, is a, a, a consumer, a young consumer of climbing videos. It was, it was important to me to have someone on there that was like, I imagine late at night watching climbing videos. Thank you, thank you. Um, I was hoping to be on here with something badass, not a fanboy, but I'll take what I can get. Awesome. Um, well, but yeah, thanks uh, for having me, and Five Points, always great. Honored to uh, have it in my hometown here, so it's like to be part of it. Awesome. I'd like to start by talking uh, to each person about their, their projects. Uh, so Dave, tell us about your film. Um, you, you, you put the extended trailer out in our festival yesterday, and it's coming up at, at Mountain Film and Telluride um, about Fred Becky. Do you care about garbage trucks driving uh, by? I love garbage <laughs> trucks driving by. No, it should be fine. Okay. Yeah, so um, Dirtbag, The Legend of Fred Becky is a feature-length film, runs about 90 minutes to the credits, and uh, probably could have run about 10 hours with all the footage we had, and we're super, super excited to finally bring Fred's story to the mainstream. Um, it's a project I started, I actually pitched to Fred back in 2005, uh, believe it or not, thinking it would be like a couple-year uh, endeavor, and... Um, here we are, twelve years later, finally, finally bringing it to uh, bringing it to the world. So we're super excited about that. 
And what was your relationship with Fred that got you to uh, to start this project? I mean, how is it that you're a guy in Telluride? He's generally lives he lives up in the Northwest somewhere. Yeah, Fred Fred's home base is uh, his car pretty much, but um, but he does have a house in Seattle, believe it or not. So yeah, well, how'd you get uh, how'd you get involved then? I actually. Um, pitched the project to Fred. I, I knew, I knew someone, uh, from another film I'd done a guy named Dick Barrymore, who was a ski filmmaker, uh, kind of, uh, Warren Miller era. And, um, Barrymore had, um, Fred Becky used to promote Barrymore's films in Seattle. And so I, I worked with Dick and I asked him, um, you know, what would you think about a film on Fred Becky? And he's like, I'd pay to see that. So I actually didn't know Fred, but I knew him from climbing, you know, climbing lore and all the stuff. And so I, I, I wrote Fred a hand, a handwritten letter and, um, never expecting to hear anything back from him. And sure enough, I heard back from him and about, I don't know, a few months later, we tried to meet up in uh, Salt Lake city and, um, he totally blew me off, took like 13 phone calls no, more garbage trucks. It's like the whole fleet out right now on Main Street. What's going on? He's just, he's trolling us. That's the same dude. That's definitely the same guy. Anyways, after pestering uh, Fred and leaving a, bu- a bunch of messages over a weekend, I pretty much um, wrote it off that it was going to happen. And then he did call me back and we met for coffee and uh, talked about it. And he, his response was, why would anyone care? Why would anyone want to see anything like that? And um, so it was like a whole year later of just meeting up with Fred, climbing with him, getting to know, know him before we ever discussed a camera or a camera ever came out. And, um, and then the trust kind of built over, over the course of, of the, um, the production over a number of years. And he opened up more and more. Yeah. Cause Fred, I mean, Fred Becky and, and this is a podcast for climbers and, uh, Fred Becky is a mythological fig- figure among climbers. And, but he's also from an era and I think continues to be, from, you know, living in that era of like, you don't necessarily spray about yourself. You don't, you go into the mountains, you do what you do. And if people want to talk about it, great. If they don't, that's fine too. But you kind of don't promote yourself. So was that a barrier that you needed to get through with Fred? Well, yeah, like I said, I mean, when I first talked to him about doing a a feature length documentary on his life, he said his response was, why would anyone care about that? Why would anyone want to see that? And um, so I think that's a testament to Fred which I which I really respect. Um, he's he's incredibly humble and um, in his you know all the things that he's done and and um, I think he realizes that what he what he has done in the climbing world is is really significant. But at the same time, he he he's always looking at the next thing and um, what he wants to do. So he doesn't think about what he has done, um, which is pretty interesting. And and that's something we try to convey in the future um just that that his accomplishments were you know unbelievable but um he never really dwell like would would say he would never say that right 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 yeah and and i have a question for you um just kind of things that i thought about when i watched the trailer and also just media with with fred and something that i've I've run into with the podcast where if i have sort of uh um there's been guests i've asked to come on that are older climbers uh not as old as fred because there aren't i don't think there are any (laughs) as old as fred but and and they've expressed to me like i i want to i'd love to come on your show but i you know i don't want to just spend on like uh, all the time on i'm an old guy who can still climb 
you know, kind of theme. And sometimes with Fred's media, that's, you know, the few things you see, it's kind of always playing on this, like sometimes even sort of the doddering old guy that's still getting up stuff. So how did you sort of deal with that? And, and I feel like it might be easy to fall into that kind of uh, thematic thing where it's just, oh, okay, there's this, he's still climbing and he's really old and that's the end of the story. So what did you guys work with in terms of thematically to kind of maybe stay out of that trap is at least as much as you could? Well, I mean, a kind of a, a mixed blessing with how long this project's been in the works is that it enabled me as a filmmaker to spend a lot of time with Fred over, over a significant amount of time, 10 years. So what became, what, what started to become really apparent was the aging process and the fact that he mentally really all he wanted to do is climb and take trips and, and, and plan things. But physically he was, he was becoming limited more and more limited as, as the time went on. But, um, so that became a a theme throughout the film is just like, what is it to age? It's something that we all have to face. And, um, you know, I, I feel it like I'm not as, you know, strong as I used to be or whatever. And, uh, but, um, so that's something we, we was kind of, a uh, that came along that we didn't expect initially, um, was just the aging process and mentally how that affects somebody because Fred is, is notorious for, um, you know, in, in the later years of his life, like failing on these things, you know, he'll try these things that are way too hard for him. And people that know him always want to encourage him to, to climb the five, six, not the five, 10, you know, cause he's going to totally fail on the five, 10, but he could have fun on the five, six. And, but, but you can't talk Fred out of what he wants to do. Right. So that was, that was a challenge for sure. But we, we kind of built it into the movie. All right. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, your film as we go on. Uh, it sounds awesome. Actually, one more question I have for you is that, you know, last night, uh, the, I, I was watching the, the trailer again and, um, you know, recently in the last couple of years, I don't know, maybe it's two, three years old now, the, the Valley Uprising came out. And um, at least within climbing films, you know, that was the first time I'd seen all that graphic work with the stills and stuff like that. And you started this long before that came out. But maybe that's all over the, the sort of movie making industry now. But it was the first time I saw that. Was that any influence on you, what those guys did with that? Or had you already worked through all that production? Um, I think, I think, yeah, I think every film is a bit of an influence on what you do, but we, um, we were fortunate to have like thousands of still photographs. Fred was, Fred's a very organized person. So he, he kept, um, he, he had, he had, you know, all these archives of photographs as well as his journals, um, which he actually didn't reveal to me probably like until seven or eight years into the project. <laughs> and, um, then he's just like, read your journals, whatever, whatever you want to do with them. I don't care, you know? And, and so that's something that we really wanted to incorporate into the movie. Um, cause it's a real, uh, a good glimpse into who he is, but the challenge was like, how do you do that? And how do you do that creatively? And, um, so we, um, we worked with some really talented people that were able to like bring the photographs to life bring the journals to life and um, kind of make it a little bit more interesting to, to view. Awesome. We'll look forward to it. We'll, we'll talk a little more about it. Let's move over to Eric here. If you guys, you know, if you have some questions for these guys, we're paneling. Yeah. Chime in, grab the mic, see what you think. So, um, so again, uh, we had your film in, uh, in five point last night, a little, little uh, vignette about a couple of babies going climbing. Um, very serious film. Very serious climbing film, I know. You were a little little uh, 
sort of chagrin to come up after Ben's movie about riding his bicycle through the uh, yeah. Arctic. Yeah. And uh, but anyway, so let's let's talk about. You said you have another project in the works that's uh, got a climbing climbing theme to it. I do. It's uh, oh, there's another busload of people coming to the podcast. <laughs> there they go. There they go. God, um, I thought this town was like super environmental. Yeah, it's just like garbage <laughs> everywhere in this town. Yeah, apparently. I saw a couple of tires on fire down the street. I don't know if that was. <laughs> oh, sorry, is that yeah. that better? You yeah. can hear the jokes better this way. Also, okay. do I look like a tornado just stole my house with this <laughs> wrapped up like this? Okay. Anyway, uh, yes, I have a, a film that um, I've been working on for over two years now. It's um, about the 1965 first ascent of Mount Kennedy by Jim Whitaker and Robert Kennedy. Um, this is kind of an iconic climb that uh, a lot of people kind of forgot about because of the history that happened right after with RFK's assassination. But the film really explores the relationship between RFK um, and Jim Whitaker. They had this really cool friendship that kind of came out of that, of that, that experience on the mountain that's reverberated through the generations. Uh, so we went back and repeated the climb in May of 2015 and shot that. So it's a bit of like a, a historical film wrapped in a, a current day adventure film. Um, it's, it's honestly like a film that's, that I've found is tricky to explain in a lot of ways. Uh, it's hard to pitch and this is why I'm on your podcast right now to practice. Okay. So any feedback would be appreciated. Um, but, uh, so far it's fair to Midland. Sort of, yeah. sort of, you're kind of fading off. Did you just fall asleep, Chris? Huh. Are you, get off your phone, man. Get off your phone. Um, the main character of the film is uh, Jim Whitaker's son, Bob Whitaker, who had not climbed a mountain since he was like 12 years old. He went up Rainier with Jim and puked a Snickers bar on the top. That's his, that's his story. So uh, at the age of 49, he decided he wanted to go climb this peak on the 50th anniversary of his father climbing it. So he was a bit of a black sheep in the family, but had his whole other life. He was the manager for Mud Honey and was really into the Seattle grunge scene, a very kind of iconic figure with that scene. You know, I, I, I like to have humor in my work when possible. I think it makes it more engaging and more watchable. I think that's something often in the mountain sports uh, genre that we can uh, forget to use. It gets a little earnest and serious. Um, like one thing I loved about the Becky thing is it's impossible for that to not be funny because he's such a character, right? Right. And good characters make good films. So um, you know that the when you know seeing the stuff we saw last night for Becky, you know the full piece is going to be amazing because he's like a crazy good character. Um, and so, you know, Bob is a great character. Jim Whitaker's a great character. Leif Whitaker's also in the film. Uh, Bob's younger brother, uh, an incredible climber in his own right. So yeah, the piece is, it's meant to be kind of a telling of this history in like an entertaining kind of emotional way. Um, that's funny at times and serious at times. And uh, yeah, hoping to have it done to premiere this fall. It's currently being ponied around Los Angeles, trying to raise some money. So if anybody in this audience here wants to give me $50,000, you in the back sitting on the Bentley. Um, yeah. Yeah, how do you pick a story? Is it mainly about the character itself? Do you find the character first or do you find the story first? It's funny because, you know, we use this term story loosely a lot. I like characters and I'd made a, I'd made a piece about Jim Whitaker um, like five years ago, like a short called A Life Well Lived. It was just kind of a little kind of poetic ode to the outdoors that I, I did. Um, and through that, met the family and met Bob. Bob actually emailed me after he saw that piece and said, Hey, that was the, the best piece I'd ever seen made on my dad. Do you ever want to stay in my cabin? And I was like, cool, creepy guy. I'm just going <laughs> to archive that in the Gmail here. But Don't tell anywhere yeah, where it is. Yeah. Um, so uh, I ended up mountain film on tour was in, was in Seattle and they were showing that piece. 
And uh, actually, no, before that happened, I actually was like, you know what? This cabin seems cool. And me and a bunch of buddies went and stayed in his cabin. I never met him. It's out in Eastern Washington. Um, but then Mountain Film on Tours in Seattle and they were playing A Life Will Live. And I invited him, you know, got him tickets to come check it out and met him. And I was like, yo, this dude is hilarious and crazy. I want to be friends with him. Um, and through that, I basically realized he'd be an amazing character. He was really reticent to be in the film. He's like, I don't want this film to be about me. And now he's kind of gets it. Like he's, you know, I've slowly kind of convinced him that he's good at How this. do you do that? Convince someone to like be in that film and portray a story about them? Um, I paid him a lot of money for this. Yeah. That usually works. Applied him with gifts. Uh, edible, edible fruit baskets was a huge thing to get him going. Uh, warm cookies. No, I think it's, it's just like any of these projects that you do as a filmmaker. I'm sure you, you experience this with Becky too, is like, you have to gain their trust by showing them that you're good at what you do. And that sometimes takes, um, you know, dealing with the fact that they're not going to trust you at first. Yeah. Do you hold a lot of responsibility on yourself to portray it in a good light? So that's obviously their, you, like their entire life, their story. And it's yeah. like a lot of responsibility. Yeah. It's, I mean, every filmmaker is different. Some people are like, they'll go to like a total murder job on somebody. They don't care. I, I respect, I mean, I have a, an immense amount of respect for the people that I work with always. It's, I'm, I'm kind of a wuss too. I don't want to make anybody look bad because they might get mad at me. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff in this film that's really about the relationship between Jim Whitaker and Bob, which was not perfect. You know, Jim was off climbing mountains um, when Bob was a kid. And so he didn't see him a lot. So a lot of that, a lot of the stories about the relationship that these kind of high power famous fathers have with their sons within the genre. So we had to delicately approach that. Jim actually has not seen the cut yet, um, but Leaf has seen it and Bob has seen what, what I've got so far. And uh, they, they think that he's going to get it. Uh, and at the end of the day, I, I think that, you know, you can go into that stuff. You can talk about the, the, um, you know, the intricacies of being someone like Jim Whitaker uh, while showing that you're respectful to the character. So is your backup career a uh, therapist? I do do a lot of therapy. If anybody wants to stop by my office, it's a van in the parking lot by the rec center. (laughs) Can uh, can I chime in for a second on that too? Like the same thing, um, that question about how do you, you know, you gain trust with somebody. And I I have an an immense amount of um, respect for kind of the elders of our sports and, and, and stuff. And, you know, but at the same time, you know, you want to tell the true story. And, and in my case, you know, Fred is, uh, he's, he's this mysterious kind of character that, that there's a lot of, um, you know, bad kind of juju about like he burned a lot of bridges and stuff like that. And so it's, it's a delicate balance. You know, you want to, you don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but at the same time you want to like tell the true story. So it, it is tough at times to, to do that. But is Fred going to care either way? He's going to be like, Oh, you made a movie. Cool. Bye. Well, same, same thing. Fred has not seen a cut of the movie and, and that's, that's on purpose because um, we just want to get him a, get him to the premiere. <laughs> and um, I know that he'll, uh, he'll feed off the energy of the crowd. So if any of you guys are in Telluride, we need to like make Fred feel really good about it. But, I'm going to um, be there. I cannot wait for this man. We should film him. We should film his reaction. We should film his reaction. Um, but Eric, I wanted to ask you, um, I don't know if, if, if people know, but, but Fred and Fred and Jim Whitaker obviously grew up in Seattle together. Fred's a few years older than Jim. And um, there's this sort of, uh, they're totally different characters. Um, you know, they're both iconic Northwest climbers. And, um, you know, I, my first time I asked, I, I asked Jim for a, um, an interview and, his response was, I have nothing good to say about Fred Becky. And I'm like, great, say that. And, uh, 
he um, he declined an interview, and uh, and then we tried him again, and we actually got him in the film. So, uh, have you had any experience with uh, Jim and Fred stories? Yeah, the only the only one I'd heard is it. Um uh, they had done, I think the Mountaineers did a, a thing to honor Jim and Fred Becky was there and Jim basically said, eh, Fred Becky was there. That was kind of it. <laughs> didn't, didn't say much, much more than that, but they are, they are amazingly like, I mean, polar opposites in terms of, of, of who they have been represented in the media, you know, like, and, and just in terms of, of profile, like obviously hardcore climbers know Fred Becky, they know Jim Whitaker, but it, you know, you, you start, going layers out and Jim Whitaker is a guy that people really know uh, because he, he's this, he's this guy that um, the media got behind and, and promoted, you know, he became, you know, one thing we talk about in the film is like they climb, oh, I'm getting a second blanket here. Shows how shivery I am. I'm like a, what are those skinny dogs? Whippets? Is that what they're called? Thanks. That's great. Do you do back rubs too? Cause Okay. You can't see he's, he's rubbing my shivering. he's rubbing my back right now. I'm clear. I'm clearly like the most like the least outdoorsy person on this panel because I'm like, what's a puffy jacket? <laughs> anyway, that, so uh, my 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 point being that I forgot what my point was. Sorry, well, we we do have a we and we once we got the interview with Jim, we were we were super excited about that, and and there is a little uh, back and forth on the Jim Fred bit in our yeah. in our film, so. Wait for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm so excited to see it, man. I've known about the project for a while, so I'm really I'm really stoked to see it. So these two guys are are you know they're when you make these films, I always ask the filmmakers, cowboys in this town too. This is like freaking high. Is it always like this at this hour on a Friday? I'm never out here. Anyway, um, the these guys are uh, you know making films, making climbing films is sometimes a a thankless, moneyless, you know, passion project. And then it, they go to these festivals, they go to five point, they go to mountain film, they go to no man's land or whatever, you know, and hopefully somewhere they recoup costs and things like that. I mean, that it, it's kind of a mysterious thing to do, um, a passion project. So I wanted to ask you Aisha, uh, a little bit about no man's land. We'll move over there uh, about your festival and then also about what it's like to curate uh, these films because, you know, talking to Julie, talking to the five point people, you know, they they say no. Uh, they get a ton of films and they don't take everything and they they say no. And sometimes, you know, I know from behind the scenes that doesn't make filmmakers happy uh, when their film is not chosen to be in the film festival because um, where else do they go? But uh, tell us a little bit about No Man's Land first and then we'll, we'll maybe get into some questions about. How you got? How you're dealing with these poor guys' films when they they show up at your doorstep? Although these guys don't get to be in your film festival, I don't think so. You can come yes. and watch. Um, so, so No Man's Land is an all female adventure film festival. We're based out of here, um, and I basically started it three years ago as a response to the lack of female representation in adventure film and in adventure media. Um, and it's been awesome, though. We've been really well received, and I was definitely skeptical at the beginning, and I was also kind of skeptical of the content. And so to speak to that, I get a lot of sci-fi. And <laughs> adventure is a very broad term, and I feel like I have a, a new respect for that definition. And so the way that I choose films basically is if it's going to be, I'll know before it's going to be a 10-minute film, and if I have to check the time while I'm watching it, I'm probably not going to choose it. Ouch. All right. Yeah. Yeah. 
So in other words, like if you're not engaged and you're like, when is this going to be over? Totally. That's, a, that's an out. Yeah. Well, because I don't, I mean, for me, it seems so counterintuitive to say, we love adventure. We love climbing. We love playing outside here. Come sit inside on a beautiful day and kick it. And so whatever I can do to keep people engaged that entire time and to sacrifice an evening, maybe a night ride, maybe a ski or something to come to an event is huge because that's not always my first choice of where I want to be. And so, you know, I don't know you super well, but you've always seemed just like such a positive and, and really nice person. Is nice. it is it all right? Like dealing. I mean, it's something new you've started. How long has it been going? It's our third year. Yeah. And uh, but it's grown, you know, gradually. And uh, so how is it? Have you ever had any problems like denying and telling someone that their film isn't coming? isn't come to no man's land? I am so bad at saying no. Like I had. This one film about this this woman in India who it was fiction and she long story short like got sucked into this arranged marriage but then slept with this homeless man and I couldn't I said no and the guy was so persistent so I ended up writing all of his subtitles and helping him submit it to other festivals <laughs> so <laughs> Like, I do my best to say no, and I do, like, in terms of getting into the festival, I'm pretty good at saying no, but um, if you've ever submitted a film, like, a lot of times you'll get, like, rejected, in consideration, like, waiting, like, I have a lot of people who have waiting for more materials, which means waiting for you to change your story and submit a new one, but I believe in you, and I don't want to say no, but it's not good. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> How many films do you get Oh, submitted? man. So in terms of films that are actually appropriate, I'd say like in a season, we probably get like 10 a month that could work, but I'd say we get like 40 a month in total. So I guess another 30 that just don't, don't fly. And how many are in the festival at each time you're like making a cut? Yeah. So, so our first year we've only done single day festivals for the last couple of years and that's like 13 films, but this year we're doing three days. Um, so we, we submitted, um, we submitted to a little film festival called Sundance and um, we didn't, we didn't get accepted. <laughs> and the rejection letter was we've had an overwhelming number of submissions this year. And this number is like totally cemented in my brain. 13,782 movies were submitted to Sundance. So I don't know how they possibly look at them, but um, yeah, but as yeah, we got rejected. So <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right, man. Foofy, foofy film festival. Yeah. This is what you want. Grassroots. Hey, uh, whatever you need here in Carbondale. So, but the uh, quality, the quality of the five point films. I was. This is my first year. I was really impressed. I mean, I was like, everything that I saw last night was dope. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, they do a good job. But again, you know, I don't know what their numbers are, but they're. They're probably, you know, making giant cuts to a lot of stuff that gets submitted. So um, one other, other question, what are, in, in terms of the No Man's Land Film Festival, gender issue kind of uh, cutoff? What, what, do you, what do you got going on with that? Because I've always been curious, because obviously, you know, dudes are working on these films, at least partially, probably, right? Totally. Yeah. So it's just a female feature. Okay. Because if we just did female made, we'd have three total. Oh. Okay. So, but we do have an award for that. If you ever make a film that's all women, produced, edited, all of that jazz. So why is that so low? What do you, what do you, yeah, that's a good, good question. Ooh, 
That's a really good question. And to just keep it light, I think that there's just a lack of example and a lack of female mentors and role models in those positions. So I think that it's been really cool to see it change. So my first year I did the film fest, I spent two years looking for content and came up with a three hour program. The next year I probably looked for like eight months and came up with a program. And then now like I can put something together and like, just a couple months and three or four months. So it's, it's cool to see that, that that trend is changing and there's more female filmmakers, more female features. But yeah, depending on who you talk to, you can go way deep on why that exists. But I'm just going to say lack of, of examples. Yeah, I think it's very true. You know, the Hollywood producers, it's always been male dominated too. And, you know, it's still fairly new um, for the, these women producers and directors. Same thing over at Rock and Ice too. I mean, you don't get that many submissions for um, women and it's sometimes tough and we have to do actively reach out. You know, we, um, we have to do a better job of like asking for more submissions kind of deal. Cause it's been so long, a big kind of intimidating barrier. So we got to like, let them know it's, you know, it's not really there anymore. We should kind of encourage that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've, I've, it's kind of confusing because I, I it's kind of like having a band with a, a, a woman singing, like it's a win win. You know, the guys love it. The girls love it. Like, and, and with films too, I don't, I don't understand, I guess just cause there's with climbing movies, it's maybe just comes down that there's, there's still more dudes that climb and it reflected it in the films. But, uh, it just seems like it's so played like guy climbing is so it's been filmed over and over again. It kind of all seems to run into sort of this a pretty similar stream. And if I find that the, a lot of the women's films have a lot more places to go, there's more to do left in terms of, of, uh, of that, as long as, you know, as long as they can break away from, I think sometimes they do fall into that pattern of, okay, this is, I'm a woman and, and here's how I sort of like subtly compare to what's gone on before with men. So there does need to be a little bit of breaking out with that. And you're sort of nodding your head a little bit or making a, yeah, no, I definitely agree. And it's tricky because it's like, because it is at this point, like right now, it is such um people are really focusing on on getting women, more women in film, more women in climbing, um, name your sport right now, like really trying to find that balance of of one, what people want to see, the stories that people want to tell. And I feel like it's been interesting because the films that we get aren't they wouldn't fit in a lot of other festivals just because that narrative hasn't necessarily been told or as that style hasn't been told. Yeah. So it's, it's just been interesting to see how things change. And in terms of like, I think a big factor is, is like you have Fred Becky, you know, who's such a character. And in ter- since they're like women's history and climbing in particular, isn't as deep and isn't as broad. We don't have those same characters to play upon and to look to. And like Katie Lee's film last night is fuck is very awesome. Uh, it was amazing. And I think that that finding characters like that is so important. And that is what really makes our, my job possible and makes female filmmakers and well, really anyone who wants to make a film about a woman makes that possible and makes that easier. But we need more of those. We need a new movie on Kitty Calhoun. Yeah. There's your character. There's your character for sure. Um, so Ben, let's go to you a little bit. Uh, working over there uh, at Big Stone and, kind of also curating films, watching things that get submitted for use for you guys on the website and things like that. Talk, talk a little bit about uh, uh, tr- trends, maybe current, maybe old. Um, I, you know, have been consuming climbing movies since the DVD days, the Masters of Stone and all that stuff, which um, still are like these paramount examples of, you know, the like 
quick narrative and then some rock and roll or then it turned into techno years later and like dudes climbing and then a little bit of, a little bit of narrative, maybe like a goofy story and then music with dudes climbing. Like that, that's pretty much what it was. Um, what's going on now and what do you, what do you sort of see with tr- people trying to break out of that, whether it's uh, women or men or anybody else that are making these films? Yeah. I mean, a little backstory. So I was like, worked at climbing gym for five years in Vermont and climbing videos were my escape. Like Vermont climbing is like two weeks out of the year, humid as all hell and not fun in this tiny little gym. And those climbing, those climbing videos would be my escape. And I'm be so, so st- uh, stoked on those. So, I mean, I come out here and now I'm working for rock and ice and working these brands to help publish these, these videos and that sort of stuff. And it's really cool to see, um, you know, they're genuinely trying to make a good video that consumers will actually like because the more they like it, the more it'll be shared, the more views they'll get. Um, but it's such a tough time these days with like, you know, consumer trends with how, um, you know, like 60% of people will stop a video after one minute online. So it's how do you keep them engaged and make it optimal for both the storytelling angle and also, um, you know, the actual views itself. So I get a lot of videos from brands and a lot of it's just like quick shots here, there of the product, more shots of the actual person climbing. And it doesn't really tell the story that I grew up really, really enjoying, um, whether it be like King Lions or something like that, where it took its time, developed a character. Um, and this is this weird balance now where it's just like, you need to maximize those one minute of airtime and it's impossible to fit a full story in there. Um, so that too. And it's also like everything's so immediate these days. Like, you know, when everyone sends a certain kind of climb and I really enjoyed back in the day when I could like see a climb in a big movie I'd never even seen before. Now it's on every, everyone's Instagram page and, uh, where like, all right, Oh, I saw like a 15 second clip of them sending. And now I see this, you know, bigger video with that clip in it, but I've already seen it before. So it takes away from kind of like the shock and awe almost. Um, and I think everyone's patience is, is so much like smaller. So it's takes away from the, you know, bigger impact of films that you used to have on me kind of deal. Mm-hmm. So what are you looking for as a curator when you're deciding what to post and think about, think about maybe you're explaining to a young filmmaker who wants to get their stuff seen. Yeah. I think um, story is, is crucial for me. Um, whether it be, it can still be done in a three minute to six minute video. Um, you know, something that explains the process of the climb to its uh, climb itself, um, what the climb means to the climber. Um, it has to be raw and authentic as well. I think that's really big. Um, and involve a character too, which is big. I love, um, a lot of the David Graham videos and I'm, I'm a big boulder and sport climber myself. So, um, he's always been kind of an idol and, He's definitely a character and he's like, has a lot to say. And one of my favorite bouldering videos that are, you know, short is, uh, Bridge, Bridge to Ashes or, um, by, uh, Bear Cam. And it just kind of process or highlights his entire journey, the valleys of, of getting injured. Um, and then, you know, making a slight progress and talking about, you know, the micro improvements of, um, like a three year, three year long project. Um, so highlighting, how hard it is to them and what it really means to them as well. Um, and a lot of the problem now too, is that it's rarely like authentic, like 
brands will say, hey, we need a video done. Go shoot this story in this place and make a you know, five-minute video. Um, and you can easily tell when it's not you know, genuine. You know, it's kind of like forced. Yeah, actually, that, that's a good place to go with a little bit of time here is, uh, you know, and is the branding and the storytelling is is definitely as again, it's this sort of I'm the old school guy. It's pretty common on the podcast for me to uh, say something like back in the day or whatever. But uh, but yeah, that, that's been this, you know, as these things can be produced so quickly and, and for less money than they were, you know, 25 years ago and things, the branding has become a big part of it. And then storytelling i keep hearing about this you know it's all that uh i think the the thing this afternoon with um backbone is about storytelling and branding this very thing and for me it's definitely a little tricky because the branding doesn't feel authentic although it's absolutely necessary uh, you know i have sponsors these films don't get made for nothing and so the brands are basically making them you know, and paying the filmmakers in a lot, a lot of times, not so much with these big story films that you guys have, but these smaller ones. But then the storytelling thing is tricky to me because I always say that my, when my uh, grandma used to catch us in lying, you know, in her nice way, she'd be like, you're not telling me a story, are you? You know? And she was basically like, you're not just making something up. That's not true. Are you? You know, and it was called telling stories. Like, are you oh. calling us? Are you calling us liars? No, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, a little bit. No. Again, like you, you, you guys have these characters. Then you have you have this. You're telling. You guys are telling history, and so you can manipulate it to a certain extent. But it, it's there. It's on the record, and you're you're going to show it. But what Ben said about okay, we need this story to tell our story about this brand. And you have to go do it next week with these people. And you can see how there's this problem there, right? Like, go make this story happen with these people that maybe don't even know each other uh, in this place next week. And we need it in a couple months. Yeah, it's definitely tough because, like, brands are the ones who are going to be paying for these trips. But they also need content out of it, you know? Like, they are going to be able to pay for these climbers to go all around the world and do these amazing feats of strength. But then they kind of force it in a certain direction, like, oh, you need to use this gear kind of deal like that and this time of year, where it's not as genuine as asking the climber, what do you want to do? And like, what is like, you know, motivating to you and what's inspirational to you as well? I I think a lot of it comes down to the definition of what a story is. We touched on that just for a second. Um, I think that that term is so overused these days and it comes from marketing departments where they're like, we want great authentic storytelling because if you say that in a meeting it's like yes that point to that right yeah i want it to be authentic um but make sure that we see the logo in every third scene right like that's not how life works um i think that i i think that we have to be really careful about what we are calling stories and be more honest with what is a story and what isn't a story in my opinion that nobody asked for a story is about how a person faces a challenge and overcomes that challenge, right? Like within the bigger context and a message about the, the sort of, um, you know, the backdrop of where that challenge is being faced. Um, sure. We get that inherently in, in action sports where someone's climbing a wall or, you know, doing something crazy, but uh, that's not necessarily just a story without kind of digging in more to what the, the internal conflicts are, you know, people have to be changed and not just changed in an external way. They need to undergo some sort of transformation, which is super hard to put in a one minute video. And it's super hard to do when someone in a marketing department tells you to do that. So um, we're lucky as feature filmmakers that we 
can let things breathe a bit more, whether people will turn it off after a minute or not, who knows, maybe. Um, but you know, to really tell a story well, you have to dig into the internal conflicts of people and let it breathe and let it go over a, a longer period of time. I think not to say that things aren't done beautifully in short, in short form, people, people do it, but it's, it's more of a challenge. I think too, that the production value that we expect from these short films has also influenced it because, you know, I just sort of, uh, criticize this idea of like forcing some story out there. But then again, you know, you watch the, the basic like handheld kind of footage that you see that I guess is the most authentic thing. It's just, you know, this is what really just happened today while we were out climbing and, you know, you can be left also being like, well, that was all shaky and sounded like crap and nothing happened, you know? So it's like, it is this line where I I can complain about one, but I'll, you know, that's what I do a lot of times complain about everything, but (laughs) you've got this problem of like authenticity actually doesn't work out that well in terms of like telling the story, like what, Oh, he climbed the boulder problem. And then they high fived and he said, dude, and techno music over and video over, you know, like, okay, well that wasn't that great either, but it was what really actually happened. Um, yeah, with, with our project, um, it it was challenging in a way because, um, Fred never wanted to be filmed and, um, for the, the entire project. So we have, you know, we didn't set up a single shot in the movie and, um, which, which was challenging for us, uh, as filmmakers. So we kind of had to, it's really raw, you know, it's like on the extreme edge of raw, uh, the footage that we get of Fred and I'm kind of, you know, in awe of, of, uh, the shorts that are out these days are so beautifully shot and they're incredible. And, and, um, but at the same time, I'd like wake up in the middle of the night thinking, God, is anyone, is anyone going to want to watch a feature length film anymore? Because, you know, everyone's attention span is so short. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a hard thing because people, there's so much content out there that's so good, um, in the shorts and you probably see it all the time. Um, you know, do people want to have, uh, to sit down for an hour and a half and watch a film anymore? It's a, it's a scary thought sometimes. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely a lot of pressure to like stand out cause there's so much content out there too. So yeah, it makes you like, you know, especially talented or, you know, um, and I think for me, it has to like transcend just the climbing market for me, um, to make it that engaging, um, like Valley Uprising is something that I can watch with my friends who don't climb my girlfriend who doesn't climb just because it speaks to me. I, I love it. I think it's really cool to see that history of Yosemite and that sort of stuff, but it also does a good job of telling, um, their perspective, uh, where they're coming from and explaining what's going on. Um, because climbing is such a foreign sport, you know, we're using our hands and feet to get up a wall, you know, it's, it's, there's so many segments from, on YouTube of, you know, news anchors trying to describe the Don wall, which is, is hilarious. But, um, for a video to both like, you know, transcend the climb market and also, um, you know, captivate that market, but still be core. I think that's, you know, exceptional. And it's really cool to see that happening with both Meru and, you know, Valley Uprising. I would say it's about five years. till robots take our jobs anyway. So Live it up, pals. <laughs> Robot filmmakers? Yeah, it's totally going to oh. be an algorithm that's going to make a climbing film, right? That's you just, perfect. You just, you know, you that's just, just record everything film. from your 360 helmet eyeball cam and then right. just spits it out for you. <laughs> it's going to be like the Lady Gaga of climbing films, like the perfect yeah. song. 
I would, so they just they just put it in they just put it in the machine and it comes out the other side pretty much and that's the way pop music God. like country pop music and stuff works you know hit this talk about you know cut off shorts your and trucks budweisers and your yeah. trucks and we got a hit boom it's out um, the, climbing I, movies the one one other thing i want to say is that uh i i think we do get overly obsessed with quality which you know it's great to see beautiful things like I I love like the stuff that Camp Four has done has just like changed the industry because they the quality is just so incredible. Um, but I will say that I think filmmakers can get a little obsessed with that and they can forget about the story. You think about you know traditional documentaries that kind of look like garbage, but you still watch them because they're great. Like the first Gasoline that Josh Fox did. Like sorry Josh if you're listening, which you're not. That film looked really bad, but it was incredible. I mean, it was this crazy story that that he told. So. Yeah, and you know, I think about the film last night of the um the the Ben who rode his bike. That right. was the first. This is the first film he's made. So quality wise, actually, that was pretty impressive. But was that the most gorgeous film that we saw last night? No, but was the story compelling? It was incredible. Like that was one of the, my favorite things last night. So I think we we often do as filmmakers, you know, when we're starting out, we forget about how important it is to to have a good story with real stakes and real change. Yeah, I mean, for me, one of my favorite films of all time is The Road to Caracol. Um, and that was just so captivating, you know, Dempster's entire, entire journey on his bike, like the real life and death dangers that he was like saying his last goodbyes before crossing a river. Like that was absolutely uh, unbelievable. And that was just him by himself, you know, and the quality wasn't a, like there's no drone shots and all that sort of stuff, but the story was so captivating that it didn't really matter to me. Asia. So you, you said you brought a kind of an idea of a couple of your favorites. What have you seen in terms of your submissions um, as well as just your personal favorites. I'm going to go personal favorites because I put a lot of time into this because I, I realize with climbing movies, they all have the same title. And I tend to remember like a section out of it and can't remember what movies they are. So here is a list of my favorites <laughs> <laughs> written down. Make these. They'll get in her film festival. Make versions of these these movies. With women. With women in them. Um, so the first scene that I thought of was was from the Sharpen, the Czech guys, and they start, they're like, we drink a lot of beer, but not a lot, like eight to 10 a day. Like, damn, that's impressive. But they climb, all of their protection is the knots. Have you seen this? The Sharpened. Number two. <laughs> <laughs> the original first ascent, and my favorite scene there is the two guys, I forget who it are, they're older, they're sitting, they're at the black and like, pretty crusty like talking about the black and their experience and it was I watched that movie for the first time before I climbed there my husband was like you have to watch this and after watching that segment I was like there is no way I'm going there but I did and it was awesome and the third one is return to sender and that's only because Timmy O'Neill is so funny and baby Renan is in it and it's just it's so good so those are my top three Anybody else want to chime in with some favorites before we go? Ben did some notes. Ben also too. has a list. We came prepared. Um, yeah, for me, I mean, the first scent was really good too. I like the DDA um, part, and it was really cool to see that, like the the cobra, ca- uh, king cobra crack. You know, he didn't send it, and it was just a cool. He was very raw, very emotional, and how invested he was in it. Um, and I just do really love those characters who are so dedicated. Even like Dean Potter, who's such a character. You know, his why he wanted to track climb. And like, that's the reason why I didn't want to track climb. Cause he was just like taking these huge whippers on gear and always so scared about that. It was like, what drove him. Um, 
You know, that broke Didier pretty much, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, but... Uh, he disappeared into uh, a Christian monastery. It was a big question of mine for the next, like, four years. Like, what happened to that yeah, guy? No, it's it's so literally, cool. he did. Yeah. yeah, not long after that. Well, he's still one of my heroes, um, even though he didn't uh, get the first ascent. But uh, besides that, um, I just, I don't know, I like... Uh, hard grit too. Um, my dad was an old grit climber too. Um, so he kind of like, this is what my dad used to do kind of deal. So it's co- kind of cool to see that perspective and something that was so different from my gym background. I was like, Oh my God, this is what real climbing is. Like, I'm like a pussy, like Jesus Christ. <laughs> like, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm a wimp. Um, but just to see the perspective and different kind of styles of climbing too is really inspiring and why people climb and what drives them. Yeah. Hard grit was a big, that was a big film for, especially I think maybe over here, probably more. I mean, those guys were used to it, but yeah, that blew a lot of people's minds and uh, it, yeah, just that kind of climbing and it's so gripping and terrifying, like the opening scene. I mean, yeah, guy gets worked. <laughs> um, does it make me gaper to say that I just love touching the void still? Touching the Void, right? Oh, yeah, the feature. Yeah. It's like, it's just like a oh, classic, amazing like, movie. incredible film where I rewatched the beginning. Um I, I did this BAMP filmmaking workshop. Um, Keith Partridge shot part of Touching the Void, and I got to talk to him about about it a bit. He kind of broke down what he thinks makes it such a successful film, but it's like within the first five minutes of that thing, you're just like, you're on the edge of your seat and you're ready to go along for the ride. There's no way you're going to turn it off. You're like, I don't care about these guys. Like, you care really quickly. And I, I think that was just like a perfect model for how do you make a compelling film. Yeah, well, they also, for a feature film, and, you know, it wasn't like as huge as, as uh, Cliffhanger or whatever, but, you know, they, it was authentic looking climbing footage. They didn't dumb it down. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, you know, everything that was being done, it made, all made sense. They weren't like on top rope and then leading and then, you know. But it was super successful. It had a theatrical mm-hmm. release. I'm yep. like, other than Meru, how many other climbing films can you name that have done that really? Yeah, the, br- the brilliant ending of that, or not ending, but t- when he's getting Spoiler through the talus. Alert. Oh, come on. Touching the, this is a climbing podcast. If my listeners don't know about Touching the Void, then I don't know what they've been yeah, doing. Yeah, but my with their mom time. might listen. She hasn't okay. seen it. All right. He, he, yeah. But when he's, when he's wandering through the talus, the way they film that, I remember, vi- you know, physically getting sick yeah, in the, in the, in the, uh, the theater because it was, you know, they really captured this idea of his disorientation. I yeah, think, a good really film well. should make you want to puke. That's what I yeah. say. <laughs> Um, I'm yeah, I agree. Actually touching the void was, was on my list. Um, I admittedly am pretty lame and don't watch a ton of climbing movies, especially the like kind of shorter ones. But, um, another one that I thought was really good as far as like recreation, like honest recreation was a North face, which was the, the, oh, the Iger, cl- yeah, um, the old North classic, face, the yeah. Iger. Yeah. That was honest, kind of cool filmmaking to recreate and oft, often recreations, don't look good, but but that one was sort of on par, I think, with touching the void. Right. For me, like if you want to go to like a you know what we call climbing porn, we've talked about that on on the show before. But the the just rocking climbing footage is uh, that really was it's amazing to me. It was uh, the Seco Block film with Clem Lascott with the two smoking barrels. You know, that thing, I think, blew everybody's mind, that, that deep water soloing film, uh, I remember. The other thing I wandered back to uh, a while ago, and they're on YouTube, is, um, is the John Long How to Rock Climb videos. Are you guys, a couple of folks are old enough to remember those. They're on YouTube. Go back and watch those films. They were VCR or VHS sold films, and it's like John Long, like so classic. They put comedy bits 
these like super lame, but so lame, they're funny comedy bits between the lessons. And then even the lessons, you'll, you know, what we consider safe now. And this was like a how to rock climb in there. You're looking at their anchors. You're like, oh my God, like, that, that looks terrifying. Um, but anyway, go back and check those out on YouTube. They're totally awesome. What we- no, I really. I was just going to say like, you know, as far as short climbing videos go, I just... I don't really like like just montages of descending. You know, it's just like it's just so hard to comprehend how hard it is because even watching like Nala's like new thirty minute video about his V seventeen and all that sort of stuff, it was like the, the last send footage is like, dude, that looks like V five. Like he just like so controlled, he's so strong on it. But then you see his like you know sixty eight try or sixty eight sessions on it kind of beforehand. And for me too, it's like I like the training porn even more than climbing porn Ooh, because I know it's porn. kinky. Yeah, uh, no, but it's like more relatable. It's like oh, like that's in my gym. I can like see how that's like so 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 hard. Right. But when a climbing video, when it's just what, no fall, is just watching them climb. It's like I don't know what's going on right now. Like it just it just seems like it's more just like look how strong I am. Right, right, so, right. So it's tra- training porn videos too. I guess that's huh? literally. Awesome. All right. Well, let's uh, let's kind of wrap this up. Tell us um, again about where we're going to see this this Becky movie. Um, yeah. So, uh, Dirtbag: The Legend of Fred Becky will premiere at Tyride Mountain Film um, Memorial Day weekend. So, hopefully, we'll see some of you guys there, and we're super stoked. Fred will be in Telluride. He's uh, he's apparently the oldest ever. Um, attendant of the Mountain Film Festival. He'll be 90, he's 94. Norman Vaughn was there like, I don't know, 10 years ago. He was 92. So Fred broke the record. We'll break the record. All right. And uh, real, real quick before you pass it on, um, with, the, with a movie like that, you're going to have its premiere. Then it possibly goes to other festivals. What, what's usually the timeline in terms of when someone can get online and pay to see it or it goes somewhere else? Do you have any idea when like your general public out there in Pennsylvania or somebody can get a chance to see a film like that. I have no idea. Actually, it's a total great unknown. Um, it, it's going to go, the next festival is the Seattle international film festival, um, the following week. And then it's just kind of see how, how it's received at these festivals. Um, we're still waiting on a couple other big ones and then we'll hopefully do the mountain film kind of big circuit with, um, Banff and some of the European ones. And, We'll see what happens. You just, it's, it's a total gamble. You have no idea if it's, if it's going to get picked up for distribution or what's going to happen. So hopefully it will, and uh, it'll be out mainstream and we'll just, uh, we'll see what happens. How much emotion is like attached to the success of it? Like how many like <laughs> copies are sold and that sort of stuff? Like, is it something kind of just like, let it go and like, all right, this oh, is well, what it is. What 12 it is. years of my life. Yeah, oh. like, here you go. It's been so I long. Mean, I, I, can mean, give my, I can give DVDs <laughs> away for Christmas for the next 20 years. I think you, you get pretty used to rejection uh, being a filmmaker and um, it's uh, just any anything that positive, positive that happens is just a huge bonus. So, you know, we're, um, we're just, we're, I don't know. I, I, there's a lot of, yeah. I mean, you want it to do, you just want to get it out to the world and, and have as many people as possible see it. Um, but you can't get too caught up. I don't think in what's going to happen. Cause it's just, it's just something you can't control. Well, to kind of tag onto that one real quick. Um, I think that a lot of filmmakers too, like you're, you're already working on your next project probably, you know, like thinking about what the next thing is going to be. I know I am. So, um, 
you know, you want it to be as successful as possible, but like filmmaking's a grind. So you just kind of have to keep working and not think about that stuff. Um, while at the same time paying attention to it, cause you know, it's important to, to do the marketing. I also think when a film's done, like you're halfway there and then the real job starts of taking it on the road and getting people to watch it. So, um, so my film we're we are hoping to premiere it this fall and then, you know, do the same sort of thing. Hopefully do some on tour sort of, um, festivals and, and we'll see. Uh, we, we have original music from Eddie Vedder in the project, which has been cool. Cause that's, that's attaching him to it has been nice because it's 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 getting out more we're having some really cool meetings with people that are interested in the film so we're hoping we can get distribution that's legit um to to show it around yeah cool thank you thank you for listening everybody too i'm gonna go warm up in the fema trailer now yeah tell us when uh what we're looking forward to with the uh, no man's land yeah, so we're still touring everywhere, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, until September. And then September 14th through the 17th, we'll be back in Carbonell for first for our first three-day event. We're going to have film programs every night. We'll have a school program if you have kids. Miles can come. And let's see. Yeah, we're going to have some sweet workshops, some good talks, maybe a live podcast. We'll see. Be there. Sweet. Well, thank you for letting me join this panel, even though I'm not creative like you guys. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'll be keep on working out Rock and Ice. So thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, guys, for coming on the show. And uh, I appreciate you giving us our time. And thanks for coming, everybody. We are going to uh, wrap it up. But uh, go check out the podcast. It's the Enormal Cast. You can get it on iTunes. You can get it on Stitcher. Um, you can go to the website at normalcast.com and get it there. Please come and listen. Uh, 127 episodes. This one will be up. I don't know, in a few weeks. Usually it takes me to get, get them out there. And before we go, um, if you guys stick around for a second, um, one of my sponsors is here, uh, Peter Gilroy. He's a, a jewelry and accessory, men's accessory maker and a climber and has been uh, sponsoring the show with a uh, coupon code for his website, entry Normo at checkout. You get a little discount and I get some little kickback, although... I don't know. Where's my check, bro? Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but he's going to give away a couple things. So stick around and uh, thanks to Tom for coming, everybody. I'll tell you what we're going to have to do. Well, jazz odyssey. We're not going about to do a free-form jazz uh, exploration in front of uh, a festival crowd. Mm-hmm.